Tonight we're looking at Isaiah 44, toward the end of chapter 44 and then into chapter 45. And many of the commentaries that I looked at were pointing to this verse, chapter 44, verse 24, as kind of starting a section, kind of a, uh, its own section that is more specifically dealing with God's deliverance of Judah through his chosen instrument, which is Cyrus. And so really beginning here, we're going to have more of a focus on him and, and God's choice of him and really just his workings within history to accomplish his purposes for his people. And so the, the overall theme is God's restoration of Jerusalem. But then we're going to see toward the end of chapter 45 that it doesn't just involve Jerusalem, but there are implications beyond for the nations as well. And so we'll begin the first part is uh, Jerusalem's restoration through Cyrus. And he becomes the focus beginning here all the way through chapter 45 and verse number 8. And so we see in verses 24 through 28, Cyrus referred to as the Lord's shepherd. And he's going to use him to lead and to guide and provide for his people. Verse 24 says, This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. A couple of really important themes in that verse. One, obviously, is the theme of creation. God is creator. And, and that, that theme, God is creator, is really going to run through this whole section because that is what establishes God as God. It's what establishes his right and his authority to do what he wants to do with his world. It's kind of the principle of if you make something, then it belongs to you. If you write a song, then you copyright it and you have the rights to it. If you write a book, you copyright it. It's your book. You get the royalties from it. It's God's world. So he made it. He designed it. He brought it into being. So he owns it. And he has the right to do with it as he wills. So that, that whole theme of God as creator kind of runs undercurrent of this, this whole passage. But also another theme here is God, not only God as creator, but God as redeemer. It specifically talks about him as the one who redeemed Israel. And the idea of redemption is the idea of purchase in order to set free. To purchase, to redeem out of indebtedness or redeem out of slavery and to set someone free. And God did this for the people of Israel at the Exodus. He redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery. He made them his own people. And he uses the image of forming a child inside the womb to talk about how he brought Israel into existence. He took this little family of Abraham and his descendants and he literally grew them, nourished them, and gave birth to them as a nation, if you will. And so he is responsible for bringing them into the world, not only in a creative sense, but also in a redemptive sense. And so in two ways, Israel owes its love and loyalty and faith to the Lord as creator and redeemer. Verse 25 says, the Lord is the one who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Another theme that we've seen is 
God's ability to know and foretell the future before it happens. And so here, God is set up, contrasted with, opposed to the false prophets, false diviners of the pagan nations, maybe even within Israel, false prophets, because Israel even had its own false prophets. So God is setting himself up against those who predict things that don't come to pass, those who define divine things about the future, and they don't know what they're talking about because they don't really know the future. But God, as the Lord, the all-knowing one, the all-sovereign one, he knows the end from the beginning. And so he can declare rightly what is going to happen. He who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. So again, God is contrasted with false prophets. What, what is the mark of a false prophet in Deuteronomy 18? God gave Moses the mark of a false prophet. The mark of a false prophet is one who gives a sign and that sign doesn't come true. He's a false prophet. Don't listen to him. And so God is not a false prophet, and his true prophets that he's called are not false prophets. He, what he gives as a word to his messengers, like Isaiah, it comes to pass, because God is the true one. He is the sovereign one, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they will be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Now, to make sense of the last part of verse 26, you have to assume the Babylonian captivity, right? So you have to assume that this is a prediction of the future. From Isaiah's time, he's looking into the future, and now he's looking past the, the Babylonian captivity. He's looking past the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, them being deported out of Jerusalem and Judah into Babylon, into Babylon. And he's looking forward beyond that to their return and to the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem and the towns around it in Judah. So God, that's, what, that's the idea here of God being able to predict the future. It's specifically about his people and what will come about for them, for the people of Judah. Who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Basically, God's control over everything right? God's control over nature. There might even be a little hint here of the Exodus where God creates a path through the waters on dry ground. And so here, this is the Lord. And, and the idea here probably is along those lines of the same God who brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea is the same God who can bring you home from Babylon and bring you back to Jerusalem again. In verse 28, he specifically mentions Cyrus who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So just a real quick overview of the history of that time period. You've got several powers that, that come across the world stage at this time that are really, really influential in the Middle East. So all the way from Egypt, Northern Africa, all the way through what we would call Palestine, the Levant, the Holy Land, all the way up into like modern day Turkey and over Iraq, Iran, all that whole area. There were several major powers that controlled that area during this time. First were the Assyrians. 
and the Assyrians were the ones who eventually brought the end of the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 BC. And it's really that time period and just a few years after that Isaiah is ministering. The next major one on the world stage was Babylon. So Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, they became more powerful and conquered the Assyrians. And so Babylon took over all that land and became an even stronger kingdom. Babylon was the one who came and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, and surrounded Jerusalem, burned it, tore down its walls, destroyed the temple, carried off its holy pieces of furniture and holy vessels from the temple, took them to Babylon, and, and carried many of the people off to Babylon. And they spent roughly 70 years in captivity in Babylon. But then another world power comes on the scene. And it is kind of a, a merging together of two strong powers, the Medes and the Persians. And they come together and form one kingdom under this man Cyrus. So Cyrus is the king of Medo-Persia. Cyrus conquers Babylon and Cyrus has a new policy that is different from the policy of the Babylonians. The Babylonians thinking was we can maintain control over people if we take them out of their land and basically enculturate them into our culture, absorb them into our culture. So essentially they took the Jews and tried to make Babylonians out of them by bringing them to Babylon. But Cyrus had a different view of things. Cyrus thought he could maintain peace and keep people more satisfied if they were allowed to remain in their native land. And so Cyrus reversed that policy of the Babylonians and gave the decree that the Jews could go back home. And that's exactly what the Lord is referring to here. And he's giving that for in advance through, through Isaiah, his prophet. That's why this emphasis on God's ability to know the future and to declare it in advance. And, and even naming the, the man, the king, by name, Cyrus. And, and it's this aspect of this prophecy that makes a lot of more critical, liberal scholars not like to think that this part of Isaiah was written by the same Isaiah as the first part of Isaiah. Because they think, how can a, a prophet, yes, a, a prophet can make, maybe foretell the future, but how can a prophet give that much detail to the very name of a man who hasn't even been born yet if, the, if we're talking about the same Isaiah of Jerusalem who lived at the end of the 700s B.C.? And so they think that just, that just can't happen. And so they come up with theories of it had to be someone else, maybe a, a disciple or, or someone else who came after Isaiah and continued to write in his tradition, in his name, maybe a student or a disciple of his, but we don't know who he was. We'll just call him second Isaiah. And then some even think, well, there was a third Isaiah beginning in chapter 56 that writes 56 to 66. And the main issue is prophecy. How is it possible that someone can, de can declare it this much and this specifically that far in advance? Well, is that really much different than Micah in Micah 5.2 saying, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come the one. Messiah, right? So that's pretty specific, isn't it? So there's an anointed one, a Messiah who will come. 
Here is the specific town, and not just any Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. That Bethlehem. And so it names it specifically, and then when Jesus comes, the uh, Herod, remember Herod asks all the, the scribes and the people of the law, where, does, where do the prophets say the Messiah would be born? And they quote Micah 5 two, And they say, in Bethlehem. So that's pretty specific. That's an even longer period of time from Micah to the time of Jesus. But we don't say there's one, two, or three, or four Micahs, right? And especially considering the fact that Micah was a, a settled, collected, recorded, copied book that was in the hands of many scribes and synagogues around the land by the time Jesus ever got there. So Micah was established, written, recorded, and predicted hundreds of years in advance, this is where the Messiah will be born. And he was. So why is it so hard to say that God can tell his servant Isaiah, here's the name of the man that I'm going to use? If God is God, right? If God is God, and, and, and here's the thing too, is, is those people who say that that amount of prophecy, that's just not possible. This has to be someone who's living at the time or after the time. Doesn't that totally undermine the entire message of what is trying to be communicated here when it says God is the one who can tell the future? I mean, that's the primary thrust of the whole message. If you take that away, the whole point of the passage is gone. No, this is the whole point of it is God is the Lord and the creator, the one who can tell the end from the beginning. Here's the proof of it that he can name the man 150 years in advance. And then here he is. So if God is God, he can, he can certainly tell Isaiah what a man's name is 150 years in advance. And that's what he does here. And so he, he calls out Cyrus and he calls him a shepherd. Why? Because one of the responsibilities of a shepherd is to lead sheep to their place. And Cyrus is metaphorically going to be used as a shepherd because through him and his decree, he's going to lead the Israelites back home to the promised land. And so Cyrus is called the Lord's shepherd. He's also in, in the first part of chapter 45 called the Lord's anointed one. That's pretty exalted language. But he refers to Cyrus as the Lord's anointed one and see all these purposes come together. Verse 1 says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now, I just want to spend a moment on this word anointed one, because the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which is where we get our English kind of derivation of it, Messiah. So here is Cyrus called a Messiah. Now I'm going to make very careful. I said a Messiah, small m. He is an anointed one. He's not the anointed one, the Messiah, capital M, the Christ, Jesus. But he is an anointed one. And, and the idea of an anointed one, and it's used all the way throughout the Old Testament. It can be used of kings. It can be used of priests, used of prophets. And the idea of anointing is specially chosen. 
God's special choice, his call, rests on that person. So that's really the, the, the point of it here is Cyrus, he, he's not even a believer in God. So it, it, it's not as if even Cyrus even believes in the God of Israel because he does it. And that's even part of the point of this passage is God can take whoever he wants to and use him for his purposes. But here he places his choice on this leader of Persia, Cyrus, and says, I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes. And as a part of that, God's going to smooth out the path for him. Meaning he's going to give him victory over his enemies. And he's going to allow him to conquer all of these peoples. Why? Because he wants him, he chose him, to allow his people to go home. And so he's going to set up everything in history to work this way to accomplish his purposes. But he calls Cyrus the one that he's placed his anointing on, his, his choice, his call upon. And I will go before you. So this is directed like to Cyrus. This is a message to him in advance of him even coming on the scene. I will go before you and will level the mountains. The idea of a smooth path, right? So making things easy, streamlined for you. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. Defenses of nations will not be able to stand before you. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Again, if Isaiah can't predict the future, and this is some other Isaiah who lives at the time of Cyrus, then Isaiah 45.3 makes no sense. Because the whole point of Isaiah 45.3 is that God can summon him by name before he's even born. And so God calls him and says, I'm going to use you and I'm going to bless you with victory and with treasure, but ultimately for the good of his people, right? For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. And there's, it says it right there very clearly that, that Cyrus was not necessarily a devout follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But God used him. And God blessed him for the sake of his own name, his own glory, but also for the sake of his promises to Jacob, for their sake. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So Cyrus is an idol worshiper. Cyrus is a pagan. But the Lord declares here, there's really only one God. There's one Lord. And I'm going to use you even if you're not aware of it. Even if you're not aware of my presence or who I am or my influence in your life or how I'm guiding history, I'm going to use you. And that's what makes me the Lord is what he's saying. And there is no other. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. One of the purposes that of God in bringing the Israelites back home to Jerusalem is the same purpose that he had in rescuing them from Egypt the first time. There is a, there's a common theme here in Isaiah 45, 6, and a theme that runs all the way through the book of Exodus. And that is that people may know 
that God is that the Lord Yahweh is God. So why did he rain down plagues on Egypt? Exodus says, so Pharaoh, Israel, the world, so you may know that the Lord is God. Why, why does God allow the Israelites to bring to come back home? Why, why does he set up Cyrus to have this much success and, and come on the scene? So that people can see God's hand of providence working in the Israelite people. And so that they, too, like before in the Exodus, they will acknowledge that the Lord is God. Because one of the things that happened in the ancient world is if you got defeated, it was like your God lost. And so the idea of losing to the Babylonians is the Babylonian gods conquered the God of Israel. But what this is saying is, no, that was all a part of God's plan. And in bringing you home, it will be very evident, be very clear that God's hand of power and of blessing is still on you. And so this is for the sake of the Lord's name. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, I think it's important just to stop there and pause for a moment. Because there's some important theology going on here. Basically, what this is saying is there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that happens in God's world without his providential control. Whether good or bad. So, the Lord brings light. He brings good things. He brings darkness. He allows calamities, disasters to happen. So, God, he's, he's in control of it all. You know, whether it's a sickness, an illness, an earthquake, a volcano, a tornado, a tsunami. There are difficult things that happen in this world. But none of it happens without the providential control of God. I still remember this to this day. It's been probably 17 years. My theology professor had this saying. He would say, there is not one random molecule in God's universe. There's not one molecule out there doing its own thing. It is all within God's sovereign control. Another theologian a couple hundred years ago said, there is not one square inch over this entire universe that Christ does not declare mine. It's all his, and it's all under his control. And so all of it, we have to say, like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. So God is sovereign. And, and, and if God is not sovereign, then the whole message of Isaiah makes no sense. That's, that's really a major theme of this section of Isaiah. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And I think this is kind of the... The culmination, this is like the, the bright hope that God has in store for the restoration of Judah. It is so that not only that they will come back home, but that they will come back home as a people of righteousness and of justice. And that God's name will be glorified in it. So God is the creator and he is the sovereign and so in the first part, we saw Jerusalem being restored through Cyrus, all that's under God's providential hand. In verses 9 through 13, we see a specific emphasis on God's creatorship 
and his right to do what he wants to do with his creation. So we have the image, uh, two images of the potter and the parent in verses 9 through 11. He says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. And the idea is just broken pieces of pottery. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, The potter has no hands? I mean, these are rhetorical questions, right? But they're rhetorical questions intended to make a point. And the point is that that which is being made can't complain about how it's being made. It, that, that which is being made can't argue with, can't question the maker. And so this is establishing the fundamental right of the Lord as creator over his world, over what he has made. Paul quotes this in Romans 9, to, to, and really kind of in the same mindset of questioning the Lord and his sovereignty, you can't say to the Lord anything. He is the potter. We're the clay. Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? And so he uses the image of a potter. Now he uses the image of a parent. You know, kind of funny thinking about this, but there is... Someone, I think he's in India right now, or maybe he's from India. I can't remember. I didn't read the whole story. But he is right now attempting to bring a lawsuit against his parents for being born. Because he says he did not give consent for him to be birthed into the world. Is he from the United States? I don't know. I, I, like I said, I, yeah. <laughs> So, like I said, I didn't read the whole story, but it's just ludicrous, isn't it? But that's kind of the image of what it's saying here. Verse 10 is assuming the the ludicrousness of someone arguing against their parents giving birth to them. A child doesn't have that choice, do they? A a child can't say, you know, when they're still forming, developing in the womb, um, no, I, I don't think I want you to be my mother. I want to choose a different mother can't do that child in the womb can't say i i don't i don't want to be born in this country no there are some things outside of a child's control right and that's that's the point here is that the 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 father the mother have has control over the child because they brought that child into the world and it wasn't the choice the right of the child it was the choice the right of the parents so really same principle going on in both images of the potter and the parent is God's right over what he has brought into existence. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? So he brings both of those images back in, talking about Israel. So Israel is his child. Israel is his pot. So he's the father, he's the potter, and basically saying of Israel, don't question what I'm doing, because I'm the Lord and I know what I'm doing, and you are my creation, and I will do with my creation as I will. And that's the point of the next couple of verses, is because he's creator, he's the potter, he's the parent, he has the right to use for his purposes whomever he chooses. And that person is Cyrus. It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. 
My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. So establishing the point, God is creator, right? That logically leads to the point being made in verse 13. So I can do then what I want to do. I'm creator, so I will do what I want to do. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that Cyrus will be righteous. What that means is God is righteous. And in his own righteousness, in his own justice, he can decide how he wants to administer it and the timing with which he desires to administer it. And in this particular instance, he desires to fulfill his promise to bring Israel back home through this person that he has chosen. And I will make his way straight. I will make it easy for him. I will clear the path. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, there's no bartering going on here. Cyrus is going to do this because I'm the Lord. Uh, I'm not entering into any bargains or agreements with him. I'm the Lord, and I'm going to use him providentially as I will, and he's going to allow my people to go home and rebuild. You can read Ezra, Nehemiah, and you can see this unfold. Now, Cyrus did not physically go down and build Jerusalem, but it was his decree that allowed the people to go back home and allowed them the freedom to rebuild. So this is God's hand. The last part of the passage, we see a God who is blessing his people, but also beyond. So he has a plan for the world, but also his people at the center of that plan for the world. Did Cyrus become a believer? To my knowledge, no. To my knowledge, he, he never did. Yeah. So in verses 14 through 17, we have Gentile submission and Israel's glory. Verse 14 says, this is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush. Cush is probably the area of Sudan, maybe a little bit beneath Egypt. Those tall Sabians, again, these are African peoples. They will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. And the simple point that this is making is, right now, Israel is the one in captivity. Right now, Israel is the one in bondage, and they're down. But there is coming a time in God's blessing when the nations will be subservient to Israel. So the idea of submission here. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. In verse 15, the idea of God hiding himself could be during that time of exile, where when they were in captivity, wondering, where is the Lord? But Isaiah's telling them, God's still there. He's working. And he is a true God, not like these idols that are nothing. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. And again, when we look at this and think about its fulfillment, I think we have to, again, see a multi-level fulfillment of this. Because the Israel that came home 
after the captivity in, say, 530, 520 B.C., they rebuilt the temple, they started rebuilding Jerusalem, but it wasn't as glorious as the Temple of Solomon. It, it wasn't as big, as beautiful as the Temple of Solomon. In a sense, this the Israel never being put to shame or disgrace again, that's not yet. Because in, in this era, this, this age, if you will, Israel was disgraced again. They were disgraced again when, during the time of the Roman Empire, during the, during the time of the Greek domination. Ultimately, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem again in AD 70. So there has to be a, a multi-stage kind of a, a, a telescoping view of this. The initial fulfillment is God's bringing them back home after the exile. But ultimately, fully, finally, God's people blessed for everlasting is something that has not fully yet been realized, but will be in the coming kingdom of Christ. And so I think we have to see that in verse 17. So Gentile submission, Israel blessed. Here we see Gentile salvation coming into the fold of the Lord. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And I think the, the point of verse 19 is that what God has revealed, he's not revealed and hidden it. It's been revealed and spoken and made available, made clear to his people and beyond. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations. So see the call going out farther. So Israel is truly going to be blessed, but the call is going out to the nations. Come and find refuge here with God. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Here, again, the coming together of these two themes. God is creator. God is foreteller of the future. No other God can do that. No other God, small g, can claim that ability. That's why he is the Lord God. Turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. So full extension of the call to turn to God for salvation. For I am God and there is no other. In other words, and I think this goes back to verse 18. When it came in and said, God did not desire for the world to be uninhabited. He desired for it to be filled. And probably reminiscence of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so all over the world, there are people. The world is filled with people, with inhabitants of people. But a large majority of those people are worshiping pieces of wood and pieces of stone is what Isaiah is talking about here. And so the call is going out 
from Isaiah, from Israel, from the people of God, going out to these people who are in darkness, worshiping that which is, does not even exist. He's saying, come home, basically. Come home, because there's only one God. All these other things that you're worshiping, they can't save you. They can't rescue you. There is only one Savior. There's only one God. Again, that doesn't fit well with our culture, does it? That says there are many ways. You can try Buddhism. You can try Hinduism. You can try Islam. You can try Christianity. You can try whatever you make up. But really the message across the whole Bible is there's only one way. And really this is not saying anything different than what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So this is saying there's only one way to be saved, and it's through the one true God. So come home. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. If that sounds familiar, it's because Paul quotes it in Philippians 2. But interestingly, who does he apply it to? Jesus. This is God. This is God saying, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear, take an oath, acknowledge. Paul says, they're going to do that to Jesus at the end of days. And so in just in quoting that and applying it to Jesus, Paul is affirming absolute, 100%, full, equal divinity with God. Jesus the Son. And I point that out because just to show you that there are many, many places in Scripture where you can go to prove the deity of Christ beyond just John 1.1. Because a Jehovah's Witness might come to your door with a New World Translation of the Bible and say, no, see, John 1.1, it really says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. A God, among others, small g. So, so Jesus, a Jehovah's Witness would say, Jesus is not on the same level as Jehovah, as Yahweh, God. And then you can say, well, that's very interesting how you twisted that translation, but let me take you to Isaiah 45, verse 23. And then let me take you over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And isn't it interesting how Paul quotes a passage that was explicitly, explicitly declared of Yahweh, of God, Jehovah, and Paul says, now, Jesus will receive that. That's interesting, isn't it? So you need, you need lots of tools in your arsenal, is what I'm saying, if you want to help others and, be, and shine the light in the midst of darkness, in the midst of false teaching. Because false teaching likes to twist and to pollute, but they can't do it all. They, they can't mess up everything. And so you can go to a New World Translation. Use their Bible, because they haven't messed yet with Isaiah 43 verse 20, or 45, verse 23. And show them, no, this is Jesus. He is full, 100% divine God. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Again, you're either going to be rescued by the Lord, delivered by him in salvation, or you're going to be judged 
and condemned by the Lord. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. Again, Israel, God's blessing on Israel, but the call of blessing going out to the nations. And all who find hope in this God of Israel, and now we know from the New Testament perspective in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all who find hope in his name, they will be delivered. They will be saved. Not by any other means, but only through God and his appointed servant. 